0: Welcome, thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, I think we have some regulars who've been to a few of these with us before, hopefully some regulars also watching the streamed version. Um, We're excited to have Greg with us as well. Um, And uh, for anyone who's not familiar with how we do these, we tend to sort of have the first 25, 30 minutes sort of streamed uh, where Izzy will kind of throw us a few, few softball questions
1: and a few huckle maybe <laughs> watch out no peeking <laughs> um,
0: and then for the rest we'll, we'll switch switch off the live stream and just focus on the the audience in the room um, but yeah with that maybe izzy
1: yes so hello everyone izzy and i'm going to be hosting today's discussion today we're going to be talking about creating well, actually one of my favorite topics, but creating a compelling vision and narrative that excites customers investors and talent in your business so, we're joined by Greg Jackson, the amazing Greg, who's CEO of Octopus, and of course, Seth Amid, CEO of Altruistic, who are going to share some of their experience and learnings um, on this topic. So, as I've said, a bit of housekeeping, first 30 minutes alive, and then chatting House rules. Um, so, please keep any questions ready because we would love to hear them. So, Greg, maybe to pick on you first how do you build and use a mission to unite different stakeholder groups so the team investors um, customers
2: i think the question is what comes first actually um are you building something and using a mission to unite it or are you actually on a mission uh i think we uh, i think there's an incredible book by a guy called john Kay, a professor, a professional in a business school uh, called obliquity Says how our goals are best arrived, uh, best achieved indirectly. And what he really says is that um, time and again, you'll have companies that have been founded to do something bigger than just delivering on, for example, uh, shareholder returns. Uh, And those companies have often uh, done far better. And in fact, there were great case studies where they pivoted ICI, uh, which uh, when I was young, it was like the, the unbeatable British giant Imperial chemical industries. It, it was everywhere. And um, its mission was to create uh, a science that would change the world for the better. And um, then in the 1980s, it decided to um, deliver the top 30% of shareholder returns. And within a decade, it was gone. And It was gone because um, the world, the, the, the economy and markets are changing all the time. Um, so if you're chasing short-term profits and you spot that you know, this year something's really profitable and your entire business is chasing those short-term trends, um, then you'll never catch them. But you're not investing in the stuff that doesn't change, that's the fundamentals. And I think um, by investing in fundamentals, it doesn't really matter what goes on in the short term. You'll never be the most profitable company, but actually, you'll be creating something that's solid and got resilience. And um, and I've seen this quite a lot in, in my career, and I guess. So, for example, when we started Octopus, um, I cared enormously about the environment. I, I joined Greenpeace when I was 15. It really matters to me. Um, I also care about social justice, you know. Um, uh, energy needs to be affordable. Everyone has to use it. Uh, you know, like if you're selling expensive watches, it's totally cool to charge 20 grand for something that costs 100 quid to make. I don't care. But if you're saying something everyone's got to use, then I think it's important um, that you work incredibly hard to make it affordable. And so for us, for example, we had a mission from the beginning that was a fundamental one. It's not going to change. At least it is likely that everywhere in the world, in poor countries and rich countries, and in good times and in bad, low cost energy is important to people. And it's unequivocally the case, that energy is the single greatest contributor to climate change. And that therefore, until we sort out the cleanliness of energy, that's a fundamental. And so by building a business against two fundamentals, we can be pretty sure that if we're good at that, we will create value. Rather than setting out to create value, and then saying, now, now what mission can we rip, wrap around this? Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I think the fundamental thing is, is, is being brave enough. And by, I don't mean we're brave, it's easy as a startup. I think it's really hard in existing businesses. But I'm brave enough to not just put a wrapper on something, but to make it your fundamental driver.
1: Mm. And for those businesses that perhaps didn't start off with a mission, what advice would you give to them to make that wrapper more, more concrete?
2: Yeah. Like, I mean, I think all businesses start off with something. For example, we started off with an idea. We had no money. right? So we went and raised some money. we had an idea and we had some money not that much uh but we didn't have many customers and we didn't have a big team uh so if you like we had a couple of things on the scorecard that were extremely positive um but a couple that were really quite difficult meanwhile our rivals large energy companies for example started with a lot of people a big balance sheet a great brand but for example they might have a legacy mission or a A a, a lot of their assets might be in things that, for example, are dirty energy. So in both cases, you've got some stuff that's helpful and some stuff that's hard. If you're starting with a brand, you've got maybe a great public affairs team. uh, You've got a balance sheet. Well, I think, you know, it may not be easy to change, but you can fundamentally change. We've seen it. There's a company called Ersted, which they're currently having a tough time. Uh, It's the world's biggest, uh, I think the world's biggest um, offshore wind company. Um, uh, but, you know, they're tough times temporary. Uh, there have been some inflation issues, as we all know, high interest rates caused by fossil fuels uh, that have made, <laughs> have made it hard to build offshore wind farms for a short time. In a year or two, it'll all be fine, right? But Ørsted used to be called uh, Dong, uh, which, uh, apart from sounding like an IKEA range, uh, stood for Danish Oil and Natural Gas. And they literally sold off all of their oil and natural gas and focused on renewables. And for a very long time, we're a global powerhouse and actually fundamentally is still incredibly valuable. So, you know, these tough challenges are totally deliverable. And I should say, by the way, at the same time, that didn't demonize, like no, they sold off their oil and natural gas. Um, so somewhere, and I don't know what it's called, there'll be you know, something that is the remnant, the rump of what they did. And, you know, look, we all use, almost all of us in some way, use oil and natural gas quite a lot. In fact, Octopus, a clean energy company, I think we're the second biggest seller of gas in the UK. Right? We're a ph- phenomenal emitter. I can talk about what we think about that in a second, but, um, but I'd rather be honest about it than pretend otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, those, those rump companies that are running in oil and gas, you know, at least they, they're clear. You know, and, and, and if you speak to some of them, they'll say, look, you know, for as long as the world needs oil and gas, we're digging it out the ground. But they're not pretending. They're not pretending that they're trying to drive the transition. And I think that's really helpful. So I'd much rather have honesty mm. for companies that are firmly driving, a, for example, a sustainable world. And by the way, ones that come from the non-sustainable world. And so in a way, you take tobacco companies, which you know, for a long time, they literally claimed that tobacco didn't kill people. And then they said, well, it does, but we're creating safe tobacco with filters and low tar. It's all bollocks, right? Mm. Uh, forgive me if, this is streamed, um, <laughs> yeah. if there's term. If there's any lawyers, it's it may not be. Audience. When I say bollocks, I mean, it's, it's, it's I, I think, largely not true. But they, um, <laughs> and then, bit by bit, they said, look, tobacco does kill people, but you know, at least for some people, fags are fun, right? And at least you could then have the honesty that they can uh, sell their product complete with all the warnings and everything else until society decides enough's enough. But at least that's more honest. And as a result, yeah. uh, tobacco has delivered better returns over the last 30 years than almost any of the sector. And yet nobody's pretending uh, tobacco is not bad for you. And I think if we can have the same conversation sustainability, which is, meat is bad for the environment, right? That's cool. I eat meat, right? I totally recognise on my personal balance sheet that's a bad thing, but I haven't given it up until we have better alternatives. Uh, And I know there will be vegetarians in the room that tell me that you know I'm being. but, But the point really being, just honesty is more important than anything. And I think that's honesty, by the way, in if you're being sustainable, and honesty if you're not. And what's really challenging. Is when you have companies that choose it is easier to cheat or to uh, deceive than it is to change. Mm.
1: So prioritize your genuine points and be honest about the bits that don't quite fit in
2: line. If you're not here for a mission that you know, for example, about sustainable, if, if you are, you know, and use tobacco as an example, just because there's no way anyone can pretend it, it doesn't do a load of bad stuff. But by not pretending, they deliver phenomenal returns for shareholders. Honestly, that's a good thing. All right. And I just think um, for a lot of companies, it will be choosing where they're going to go, making tough decisions, but you you can deliver astonishing returns by just not pretending anymore, which is better for the planet because we at least all know what to think about you. Right. And that's really powerful. Or choosing to make positive change.
1: Yeah. So, honesty's over here. Seth, I want to talk to you about <laughs> consistency. I like the contrast with honesty. <laughs>
0: <laughs> honesty's over here and on this side. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. The naughty corner. How important, well, learning from your experience at Altruistic, how important is consistency as a factor in building a mission?
0: Yeah, so I, I, I'm i slightly less well known than Greg, <laughs> and Altruistic is catching up still. With Octopus. So, maybe just by way of introduction to our company, we've I think we're, we're sort of also in, this, in, in the startup space, we've grown similarly at a pretty radical pace. We're now 80 people uh, worldwide. And for those who met us two years ago, we were maybe a quarter of that. Uh, I think my learning from this experience is that you sort of think about uh, lots of small things done day after day in a consistent way, and a few big things uh, that are bets. And let me maybe actually tie this in with what Greg was saying. So when, when Greg talked about dong and ersted, uh, one of the things that made the, the dong transition to a sustainable business work from a, you know, heavy emitting business to a, let's say purpose-driven renewable business was they bet the farm. Like at some point they said, actually the business we're in, isn't the business of the future. We need to pivot and do this new thing. And we're going to bet everything on this. And if it doesn't work. We're, we're, we're in serious trouble, but that's the bet we're making. And I think for us, for instance, we're in the sustainability data space, and we decided pretty early on, literally since day one, that we wanted to solve for decarbonization and impact reduction. We're not solving for reporting. If we solve for decarbonization and impact reduction well, then reporting is done as a byproduct. And that design choice meant that we tried to optimize for taking in data in large volumes, high granularity, assigning tags and classifications. It was a big engineering lift. And if we'd gone down the wrong path with that, if that had been the wrong bet, and actually it turns out no one cares about decarbonization, everyone just wants to fill out a GRI report, uh, then actually like this would be a massive hemorrhage of cash in the wrong thing. And so that's kind of what I think about as like a big strategic bet, and you need it to work out, but it's an act of conviction uh, behind your purpose. If I maybe look in the other corner, and I think about what is it that you need to do repeatedly day and after day, day in and day out. Uh, what I've noticed is, so the average age in our company is probably 29, 30 thereabouts. So we have a, generally a very young young uh, community, and, and, and this community has come to us primarily because they want to change the world. Like I think probably 60%, 50% of people at Altruistic are here because they genuinely want to change the world and that's all they care about. And actually it's it's not about the money. It's not about share options. It's about changing the world. 25% want both uh, and 25%, let's be honest, are probably here for the money. Uh, <laughs> you know who you are.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but but you know, if you if you kind of think about that 75% base and what it takes to keep them energized and excited to come in day after day, You need to show that you're sincere and that it shows up in all the small things. So, for instance, we're a business dedicated to transparency, right? We're making environmental data clear, accessible, transparent. And if we're not transparent with ourselves internally, and if we don't cascade bad news as fast as good, and if we're not upfront and honest with our customers, our business will call us out. And so every now and then, right, in all candor, every now and then, this is software, there's a bug, there's an issue, there's a problem. Every now and then, a calculation goes fuzzy. And it's not just us, it's it's a figment of the space. But we realize that every day, you know, every other day, we maybe need to make a hard choice and just go to a customer and say, look, this is something that's happened. We're going to fix it together. Um, and that's how we work through this. And that's not just to build and maintain trust with our customer. But it's also to make sure that everyone in the team knows that we're sincere and committed. And as a retention strategy, that's the hard thing, I think. It's very easy to update the website. It's very easy to put a mission statement out there. It's very hard every day to make a decision in line with a certain value, knowing that it may or may not always resonate and may or may not always feel like the right thing. Uh, One example is we had to create a commercial ethics policy, uh, which is for anyone who kind of. Is wondering what this means it's like which customers will we not sell to um and and for us actually this came up pretty early because we had we had people in our team who were challenging why we were in a tender process with a company doing a b or c and so we had to basically define it and the way we we thought about it was we want to keep it simple and practical so we said look if the person selling the contract or the person working on the contract would not be excited to find that this customer was 10 times more successful in their core business next year. We shouldn't be selling it. So, now if you kind of apply that filter and you think about, let's say, a tobacco company, right? Would I be happy to wake up and find that a tobacco company had made 10 times more money? Probably not, right? There's a, there's a few other businesses where I can say the same thing. Uh, you know, I, I worked with a company in the coal liquefaction space. Uh, you know, like, would I be happy if next year they did 10 times more revenue? Probably not. And so if that's the the rule of thumb, then you you shouldn't want to do business there because you won't be sincere and you won't want to give it your best. And those sorts of things, you know, frankly, are OK in good times and in bad times look much harder. But that's the the tax you pay on consistency, I think. So I Mm -hmm. find that both the big strategic bets uh, and the small day after day decisions end up being equally important.
1: And Greg, I can imagine you can relate to this as well, having the energy crisis and cost of living, there must have been quite a few big, hard decisions that you had to come up against where it could have gone you know, either way, but the mission aligned and perhaps not mission aligned. How do you manage those?
2: Yeah, I think um, look, uh, you talk about the cost of living crisis. I mean, it was a gas crisis. It was a fossil fuel crisis. It was entirely caused because of our dependence as a society on fossil fuels. Um, uh, obviously, I think we all know that the biggest component was uh, Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine um, and the sudden requirement for a lot of Western countries a lot of European countries to remove themselves from reliance on Russian gas uh, but actually even before that in the post-pandemic supply chain disruptions um, gas wasn't you know gas was caught up with all the other things I' already seen a doubling of the price of gas before the invasion of Ukraine um, and you um, uh, I think uh, look, I'm, I'm really quite proud of the UK government on this, actually, which was very early on. I remember going to see uh, uh, the Secretary for Energy at the time uh, and saying that we need to be really clear. This isn't an energy crisis. It's a gas crisis. And the government covered it in that way. And I think it's really helpful for people to know that, for example, this wasn't caused because of a, you know the fact we've adopted renewables. In fact, if we'd adopted renewables faster and more fully, we'd have been better insulated against it. And I think uh, we we we... As a company, we, right at the beginning of the crisis, we actually changed all of our billboards, to say gas is expensive, wind is cheap, build more wind, right? Because we desperately need the policies to be able to build more wind. Um, now, the downside is, uh, such as our addiction as a society to fossil fuels, that instead of building more wind, uh, for example, Germany built five liquid natural gas terminals. And I remember I was on a stage with a former energy minister, and she said, uh, well, you know, look, uh, obviously you know, the, the gas thing's very urgent, like, well fucking hell. Oh, forgive me, language. Sorry. Um but, but you, you, can build a, you can build a wind farm in a year if you just gave us permission. Right? Mm-hmm. If we had permission, we could be building a wind farm in a year. And people go like, you know, well, what difference that will make? But well, actually, you know, um, for any decent sized town of us, we can build a wind farm nearby, we could generate, you know, a huge chunk of our electricity and insulate them dramatically from the fossil fuel crisis. And um, sadly. You know, certainly the UK. I think I saw a couple of days ago uh, there wasn't a single application to build a new wind farm last year in in, in England. Um, so uh, I think on the one hand, I think the public really understood, appreciated that this is a gas process. But what we haven't done is crystallised upon that understanding to take the action we need. That you know, look, we may be through the fossil fuel crisis for now. Although, let's remember that they happen periodically. They happen roughly once or twice every decade. Um, uh, And we haven't capitalized on that to uh, deal with the bigger crisis of climate change by building more, for example, wind farms. Uh, There is some good news. Uh, You know, like uh, we work across, I think we generate electricity in 15 countries now. And in some countries, it is now easier and faster than it's ever been. In Spain, there's a regime where, in parts of Spain, we get permission to build a wind farm in 10 days, right? It's incredible, right? Um, and so what we're beginning to do is build this checkerboard of uh, country and policy, and then you fill it out. And you say, right, which countries are, de- de- are delivering policies? And then we can take the best of that and take it to every country to de- uh, uh, to-, to enable us to deploy faster. And so I think now we are going to see a race. Incredibly, I mean, it wasn't too big a question, so forgive me for going off a piece, but... Um, Uh, Look, the the world at the moment is full of, I think, um, in some ways, uh, unnecessary divisions and and we're ending up uh, kind of dividing more than we ever need, Um, but uh, half of all the renewables in the world built last year were built in and by China. If you look at the growth rate of, for example, Chinese electric car companies, while Western car companies are struggling to deliver competitive electric vehicles, and therefore are saying electric vehicles are not popular, they don't work, whatever, China's just come all in and on both renewable generation and the uses of renewables, electric vehicles and heat pumps. I think uh, uh, a lot of Western countries are about to see an absolute tidal wave of change, and we should either be grabbing that and benefiting uh, both our citizens and the planet, Or we're just going to find that we're we're left behind increasingly irrelevant yeah i I think we're actually seeing
0: a similar thing happen in emerging markets which is quite interesting where if you look at certain value chains and let's take textiles as an example uh, some countries are leaning in much more and much further on decarbonization and they're doing it at a national level and a strategic level and as a result their industries are going to be better positioned to benefit as brands start switching around their supply chains and I think that's kind of when you sort of say the 10 days to build a wind farm, like, you know, again, I, I grew up in Pakistan and I know Pakistan is it, this is nowhere on the road map. Like it will not take 10 days. It may take 10 years. And you're lucky to get paid at the end of that. And, you know, like Pakistan is a big textile industry. And I, I think that they should be looking at Bangladesh and looking at Vietnam and looking at Thailand and starting to see how some of this policy is just going to radically reframe competitiveness. And I actually think for those in the room buying from like agricultural value chains, this is just going to be heavier, right? Like we're looking at, you know, Africa, Latin, uh, Asia. There's going to be big implications for global trade flows as a result of some. I know, mean, your your policy grid uh, almost is a good guideline for a lot of companies to look at and kind of wonder if they'll be competitive just by virtue of what their their government is doing or not doing. you should work out
2: together. I think, cool. it's, like, just to put this in perspective, um, in parts of the global South, you can generate electricity from solar energy at under two cents per kilowatt hour. Um, uh, currently a consumer in the UK by the way is paying 37 cents per kilowatt. hour um, uh, with fossil fuels the cheapest we can get to is maybe 5 or 6 cents so renewables can be 3 times cheaper than the cheapest alternatives and that's only getting better I think the cost of solar fell by about 40% over the last 2 years Right? all these technologies really mean, I, I, for a long time a lot of people working in sustainability have had to Struggle with saying, how do you tell your company or your supply chain they're going to spend more to tick some boxes? Honestly, increasingly throughout the world now, we're at the tipping point where the fundamentals, the physics, of certainly in energy, of clean energy, are cheaper than the alternative. And uh, finding ways to enable supply chains and companies to benefit from that, even before markets have caught up, yeah. is a huge opportunity. And I think, by the way, 2024 is the pivotal year for it. And I think also before
0: regulation is caught up, like, again, you know, I, I remember looking at looking at the cost of electricity in, in this Pakistan textile context, and the mainstream cost was about 20 cents uh, per unit. Uh, the subsidized agriculture rate was about seven. And the the solar, uh, the solar kind of and, and battery stack was four, basically. So you actually had just on a mainstream basis, renewable energy cheaper than even the subsidized uh, agricultural rate. And I think that's actually probably the case in a lot of global south. Yeah.
1: And so you mentioned you work across 15 countries. How do you actually tailor or do you tailor that narrative, that mission in each context?
2: I think, um, I mean, I started started off by talking about the fundamentals, but uh, according to someone I spoke to, uh, the laws of physics are literally the same everywhere in the world. Um, And so um, (laughs) it's really helpful to talk to governments and and regulators and and, uh, business partners about the laws of physics. Because um, the laws of physics really, really, really apply in the world of, for example, electricity. Uh, so the first thing is that solar power and renewables, uh, if you've got, and, and wind and, and hydro, um, as long as you've got the right resources available, most countries have got at least one of those three, um, uh, are increasingly cheaper than anything else. And then talking to governments about the fact that, you well, know, it turns out humans are pretty much the same everywhere in the world as well. We, it's really easy to fall for this thing that people are different. But honestly, like the fundamentals for everyone, um, everyone wants cheap power, right? By the way, there are 600 million people in developing countries that don't have any power at all, right, um, and, you know, incredibly, they are often in regions like, for example, a lot of sunshine, often a lot of wind as well. Instead of big, expensive, grid-based projects, we can be bypassing uh, those huge infrastructures to go straight to the kind of thing that was talking about, which is locally generated solar, Plus battery maybe, plus wind maybe. Um, uh, it, it cheaper than power has ever been, and, and very similarly uh, to the way in which um, smartphones you know, leapfrogged the need for landline infrastructure. And so, uh, ultimately, I think wherever we're talking the world, it's really about the fundamentals that citizens and businesses, industries, uh, want access to cheap power, and the cheapest power is from renewables. And then we just have to talk about within a given context what the best way of delivering that is.
1: Mm -hmm. And Seth, would you say the same for the traditional sustainability data challenges, speaking to the sustainability practitioners in the room? Yeah, I think,
0: Izzy, like I'm seeing sort of three paradigms globally. Uh, One is, let's say, the EU reporting paradigm. And so you have a lot of regulation that's come in. And, you know, just from companies that we speak with, that's driving a need to report. And so you, most com- most large companies around the world are captured by that, either because they're in the, in the EU or they're exporting into the EU or they have a division, etc. And I think that's one thing driving change. I think there's a second paradigm, which I see as the uh, let's create a new industry globally kind of paradigm. And I sort of put the U.S. and China and to an extent, India in that bucket. Uh, where I think that the U.S. and China and India are all indicating uh, a desire to create large scale industrial advantage through a, a very proactive, muscular industrial policy. Uh, Inflation Reduction Act, great example in the in, in the U.S. Uh, China going down that route already. Look at the you know, uh, mobility value chain. India on you know, grid power, right? clearly heading in that direction as well. And I think that pretty much these three, I think, are going to really reshape how a lot of this works. And I think the third paradigm is uh, countries that don't have the financial muscle or firepower to go in 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 that second camp and don't necessarily have the consumer demand to fall in that first camp, uh, but want to be competitive and want to make sure that they can emerge, maybe not as net like, you know, they don't win a huge share of the pie, but they can at least win versus their traditional competitors. And so I think about countries like Costa Rica, for instance, where we've just made our first hires. And for Costa Rica, they're looking at how do they have a a, a net zero export policy where actually everything that they export can be a net zero product. And I think that's quite interesting. And you'll see, I think, a number of countries start to try and play in that direction where they look at a specific value chain. And they want to take a part of that value chain and they want to just sort of win versus their traditional competitors in that space. I think those three sort of paradigms are what I see shaping a lot of thinking. And so in the EU, for instance, a lot of the conversation we have is still around just reporting and kind of filling out data and kind of getting stuff over the line. In the US, a lot of it is now shifting over to how do you benefit from subsidy regimes? The sheer scale of funding available is huge. I expect to see the same thing in China, uh, maybe a year behind, two years behind with new regulation coming in. Uh, I expect to see the same thing and maybe a year or two uh, behind that in India. And then on the other stuff, I think it's very specific to particular materials. So, like, I think Bangladesh is moving on on garments and textiles. I think Costa Rica and certain Latin countries will move on fruit, for instance, and a lot of agricultural produce. I think it's going to be quite interesting to watch how just global trade is reshaped mm-hmm. as a result of this.
1: And I'd love to draw on also what innovations are going to help shape this. Greg, what do you think? Well. What first and foremost as a tech entrepreneur, what do you think are the big technologies that are going to shape the energy transition particularly?
2: I mean, one thing uh, is we have all the technology we need today. All right, um, so you'll see uh, a lot of the time, people want to delay the transition. We'll talk about uh, expensive things like carbon capture and storage or hydrogen heating or um, nuclear fusion. And they may or may not, any of them, be any use at all. Um, uh, but we don't need them. Uh, Today, through uh, renewables, um, and and maybe a small amount of gas backup, but honestly, that that may turn out to be even even that may be necessary, uh, we can provide the uh, power needs of the world at lower cost than we experience today. Um, For those parts of the world that don't immediately have access to lots of renewables, long-distance interconnectors, you know, our company's backing a project to build a connector from Morocco to the UK. uh, with a huge solar farm and wind farm in Morocco. Um, long distance interconnectors, for example, uh, are becoming the way in which power is moved around in China and they'll become kind of more and more standard globally. The point being, we don't need any new technology. If we get it, it's just a bonus. Um, uh, forgive me for an outdated metaphor, but you know the iPhone launched with uh, Edge if anyone remembers. Yeah. And if you got an edge signal today, honestly, you, you, you just give up and send a letter, right? Uh, but that was enough to get going. And then we got 3G and 4G and 5G and six is on the way. And in the same way, we just get going with what we've got. Um, and so the single thing um, we really need is, is just to electrify everything we can. Electricity, uh, which is not a massive new innovation, just turns out to be remarkable. An um, Electric car, turns 80% of the power of the battery into motion. A petrol car turns 25% of the uh, energy in the petrol into motion. Uh, a gas boiler turns 85% of the energy in the gas into heat. A heat pump turns 300% to 500%, but well, generates three to five times more heat than the energy input. By uh, that doesn't break the laws of physics, we can talk about that. Um, Electricity is just better, but it's also fungible. Uh, You know, if you've got a house with solar panels and a battery and a heat pump, we can guarantee no energy bills uh, because we can grab energy from the electricity from the grid when we need it. We can dump it back onto the grid, get paid for it and then bounce the whole thing. You can't do any of this with fossil fuels. Um, And so I think uh, the single thing is electrification. As you electrify, you know, it might be that today electricity is generated by a gas power station or even coal, but if the end use is electrified, bit by bit, we can replace that with renewables. Uh, and, and again, incredibly, thanks to the efficiency of electricity, uh, an electric car, which gets all of its electricity from a gas power station, will generate less emissions than the petrol car. Uh, an electric heat pump that gets all of its electricity from a gas power station will generate less emissions than the gas boiler. Right? So electrification is the only thing we need to think about. All the rest will then follow.
1: Mm. And Seth, what are your big bets for the decarbonization transition?
0: I'm going to mostly agree with Greg. (laughs) Smart bet, I think. Uh, But I'm going to add four other things. Uh, So I would say the first one I agree is is, is basically, I think, a shift to renewables. Like I think a shift to renewables in different formats, however you cut it, whether it's solar, whether it's distributed, whether it's centralized, uh, whether it's wind, I think there's a shift to that. And I think storage within that is going to be a big component uh, as well. Um, If I look at it from the perspective of, you know, certainly most of the companies in the room with us and many listening online, and I sort of look at it from the perspective of your climate roadmap, your carbon baseline, what is actually going to move the needle? I think that most companies I speak with are looking at five buckets, basically. The first one is, is the shift to renewables. In the context of, again, your carbon numbers, that's a very small thing for most companies. It's a percent, 2%, 3% just in, in how, how this stuff is calculated. I think there's a second lever, which is electrification of transport. And I think it flows from the first almost, where you know I can, I can, if you electrify transport in China today, it's probably like a, a nuclear explosion for the environment because you get a lot of coal, coal-based power. So you need to kind of decarbonize grids and then actually have electrification of transport. Uh, the third uh, situation I think is around uh, circularity. And I would specifically look at packaging for that. I'm using circularity broadly, and I'm kind of seeing recycled content, um, as well as, let's say, reuse and and other modes, because anything you can do to kind of reduce the new material use in that, I think, is going to be important. Uh, The fourth thing that we're seeing a lot of is alternative materials. And so think about like, uh, you know, whether it's like meat based materials switching to plant based. Uh, in many cases, whether it's natural switching to synthetic, which can often actually be lower emissions as well. I think mean, there's a lot of material switches. That's an exciting space for innovation. I think exciting mm-hmm. for entrepreneurship, lots of money, uh, I think will flow into that, um, but also it's just, um, it's an area which is quite complex because you need to ha- I was speaking with the COO of a big food company recently. And what he was telling me was that they struggled to get enough capacity on the production side that it made sense for them because they wanted to buy a dairy alternative at huge scale and the supplier was able to supply 1% of what they would have wanted. So they now need to somehow pool together, you know, like other suppliers and make that work. And I think that can be tricky. And then the fifth thing I would look at is is, uh, agriculture-oriented reductions. I don't use regenerative agriculture because I, I think that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I think there are parts of that that work particularly well for emissions reduction and parts that maybe don't. But I think about any agricultural-related uh, sequestration, etc., as another big tool in the toolbox that most companies I speak with mm-hmm. are looking at. So those five, I would say, uh, from a company backwards lens. I feel
1: so a bit mean. I, I would, uh, gave uh, uh, Let me let me just jump time. in.
2: <laughs> no, so uh, and by the way, I counted because you said four, and then you did five as one of your four, which I think is nine. Right, very the, um. So, uh, but I think it's entirely reasonable. It's extremely compelling, but. Obviously, I'm sitting to the wheelhouse of energy. Um, and I think the, the one observation I would add there on top of this electrification thing is that um, end use changes uh, when you change the source. So, for example, renewables are the cheapest form of electricity uh, energy uh, we've ever had to get cheaper of year, as long as you use them at the time they've been generated. And I think getting used to the idea that, for example, traditionally it might have been most efficient to uh, I don't know, run a factory for a straight 16 hours. We might get to a world where sometimes it's most cost efficient to shift production depending on the cheapness of the electricity at different times. Um, and you a know, great example uh, here in the UK is um, uh, we, we've got a product uh, called Intelligent Octopus. You, if you've got an electric car, you get home, you plug it in, and we automatically charge it at the cheapest times. So, um, as long as you, when you first sign up, you'll set your preference. Uh, 80% charge at 7 a.m. every day. And then within that, we just optimize because you don't care whether we're charging at 5 p.m. or 5 a.m., as long as you get your preferences met. Um, but that product means that the electricity is three more than three times cheaper than standard grid price. It means that you can drive your car uh, £2.30 for 100 miles, whereas with petrol, it's £20 for 100 miles. It's eight times cheaper driving on petrol, because we're optimizing it against the renewables. Um, and I think, uh, and by the way, the, the scale of this is incredible. Like uh, a, a year ago, we had about 0.1 gigawatts of it, and it's now about a gigawatt. So it's grown about 10x in one year. Electric cars are only about 5% of the fleet and only a quarter of them are on this product in the UK. Um, now, a gigawatt is the same as a nuclear power station. Uh, so when you see in the media all the time about how difficult it is to build a nuclear power station right, um, in one year we brought, I mean a, a small one by the way, it'll be a big one by the end of the year, um, but you know in a year or two we've created a nuclear power station's worth of electric vehicle flex and as electric vehicles go from five percent the, the, the uh, fleet to hundred percent and as all of the cars end up on these kind of products, it's the equipment of our entire electricity system today becomes flexible and that flexibility I think really matters in the world of industry so at the moment, there's a 10-year moratorium on building data centres. Um, to the west of London. Slough is the biggest concentration of data centres in Europe, and you can't build any more because you can't get the power. Meanwhile, in Scotland, we spent £3 billion last year throwing away green electricity because there wasn't any demand. And, of course, what we should be doing is the data centres should be moving to Scotland. Um, and uh, at the moment, the market signals not there. Someone asked me earlier about uh, what the biggest barriers for us are. It's the regulation of markets that open up the, um, economics to incentivize companies to locate to where you've got cheap green power. But in the way that at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, uh, steelworks moved to where you had a lot of coal and a lot of iron ore. Um, so we'll see a lot of energy-intensive uh, industries moving to where you've got cheap electricity and that'll be where it's windy and where it's sunny. Uh, now we need the markets to open up. But I think this kind of electrification is not about saying it's business as usual and we just change the source of power. It's fundamentally if I was you know, looking after a supply chain, I'd be thinking about where can we start relocating stuff that will get this cheap power?
1: Yeah. I've been given the nod that we're out of time. But I just <laughs> that was love- Seth's nine things. <laughs> <laughs> what would you blame? But I'd love to just ask both of you one last thing. If you had one piece of advice to give people or professionals who are trying to drive their mission, what would it be? Who wants to jump in first?
2: I mean, like, I mean, first of all, obviously, you've got, you've got far more info in this, but look, I, I think the the biggest insight for us that's been successful is how do we um, align economic interest with planetary interest, planetary, the planet's interest. Um, yes. yeah. Because I think um, in doing so, we're not pushing water uphill. We're at least kind of following it downhill. And I think, you know, if you look at the, the growth of the company, a huge part of it has come from, um, you know, always seeking the... the the combined win. And, and, and by that it's not profit maximization, it's just uh, economic viability or economic improvement alongside the planet. I, I, an interesting thing by the way, um, Seth, you, you talked about um, you know, the importance of, of what this means for, for teams. Um, if I tell everyone here that last year we recruited one or 2,000 people, um, and we're only an eight year old business, that's a big number, but how many job applications do you think we've got? Any and guesses? One or 2,000 jobs, right? If I said it was 260,000, right?
1: <laughs>
2: so far this year, it's February the 19th-ish, I don't know how chase. is. Um, uh, we've had 80,000 job applications so far this year. Um, people tell me you can't recruit tech people. We had 60,000 applications of software developers last year. Um, now, I would just say this because, um, it, you know, the extent to which aligning interests creates uh, truly compelling opportunities for people. And, and look, if we get... Quarter of a million job applications, and, and there's one in the room, so I'm very conscious of one. But <laughs> um, you've got this, like you can pick the very best talent in the world, mm. and that gives you this astonishing ability to outcompete incumbents. And so, um, I guess the big thing for me is just thinking about this alignment of interests all the time.
1: Yeah, it's a good one. Seth? I
0: think for me, kind of related to that, I would just think about how brand benefits compound. And so actually, if you think about some of the most sustainable brands in the world, like Patagonia, for instance, right? And I saw a couple of people in the room wearing, wearing, wearing Patagonia. If you just think about the, the additional value that you get just by putting that logo on, a, on an item of clothing, I think that's that's the quantifiable benefit of building an enduring brand. And I think what most companies miss around sustainability is they think of it as a reporting challenge or something, something uh, defined by the moment. Whereas actually, when I look at the data, I think about a generational transition of preferences. And I kind of look at like, who is it in all those surveys that we talk about that is actually saying that they prefer the more sustainable option? It tends to be people who are younger. So actually, the biggest correlation is not income. And I actually did the analysis across different countries. It's actually age. Younger people tend to assign a higher priority to it across all countries, actually, like Indonesia, Malaysia, US, Japan, wherever you, you go. Uh, the second is they tend to be more urban. Uh, the third is that they tend to actually are, are, are less likely to identify as men. Uh, and actually, when you start looking at all the sort of dynamics of this buyer group, you get a really enduring, really loyal buyer group that also has many years of buying capacity ahead of them. And I think when you start to realize that that's the value play here, that's what you're, you're playing for. Then you want to you want to really focus on building a sustainable brand that can actually survive for decades and just tap into again that new generation and actually again the data tells us that the children of this generation are more likely to have even even stronger preferences like the the trend is actually generational uh going back going back in time as well so that the main thing i would think of is like how do you just create a brand that can last using sustainability as a springboard to do that yeah. better
1: i think that's a great place to, to stop Um, I'm going to close down the live version thank you everyone online for joining um, and open up questions